This is an ABC podcast. We have produced this podcast on Awabakal land and we've spoken to people living and working on Aboriginal land across Australia. We pay our respects to the Elders past and present. Hi, I'm Kirk Fernley, Paralympian and proud person with a disability. And I'm Sarah Shantz, mum of a child with a disability. And I'm not going to lie, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes I feel like I just don't want to be different. Yep. Sometimes it is really hard. Okay, it's Friday afternoon. No one's really working and we're all watching the clock to tick over to 5pm. Yay, let's go to the pub! It's time to get all our work gripes off our chest. So what are you going to complain about? Well, for people with disability, it's more than just a smelly fridge that needs a good clean-out or how annoying the boss is. Prue Hawkins is a family lawyer from WA. She's funny, clever and quick-witted, but for a long time she was also unemployed. So she did what anyone else would do and started her own practice. This was, I literally am going to starve to death. Let's be fair, my parents had never actually let me starve to death. But, you know, it was not, I was years of hunting, 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 and just, you know, when you go into an interview and you shake the employer's hand and literally the first sentence that they say to you is, oh, yeah, my wife was in a wheelchair for two years before she died. Where, where, where do you go from there? So, yeah, the experience of, um, of going through the employment world was just a nightmare for me. I remember going and getting a job and the first drinks that I have out, I couldn't get into the venue because nice. they celebrated nice. at an inaccessible place. Yeah, oh, that doesn't sound common at all, Kurt. How dare you? <laughs> yeah, that happens all the time and... There was a lawyer that was looking for someone with my level of experience and we got along famously and it was amazing and it was pretty much come and have a coffee and the job's yours. But I couldn't actually get in the building. It was a super old, sort of like a converted house. So that was probably one of the most frustrating experiences I'd ever had because I was like, oh, my God, if I could just fly, then (laughs) we'd be fine. You don't understand how many times I've turned up to a job where there's five or six steps and the people look at it and go, well, luckily you can crawl Kokoda, so this will be a breeze. Oh, Oh, yeah, okay, mate. That's because that was a choice you made to crawl Kokoda, not because it was your only bloody option. I love my favourite because obviously, you know, you're, you're in a very different chair to me is when people go, oh, we'll lift you. And just the look of dread on my face because my wheelchair is 150 kilos and uh, my bones break real easy. And I'm like, there is no way in hell anyone is lifting me up these stairs. But thanks for playing. It's hilarious. And good intentions don't win new employment. Very kind. (laughs) Very kind. As you can probably tell, If you have a disability, then getting a job is pretty difficult, with the unemployment rate twice that of people without disability. Anne Kavanagh from the University of Melbourne has been looking into the impact of unemployment on people with a disability. So employment is one of the most powerful determinants of health and mental health and well-being and it's it's partly to do with you know the income you need income to to live a, a good life 
it's also part of your identity and part of a sense of meaning in your life and all of those things link to people's mental health. And there's a really strong body of literature that's shown uh, how bad unemployment is for people's health, mental health in particular. But our work, work we've done over a number of years now, actually shows that employment is even more beneficial for the health of people with disabilities than people without disabilities. The Victorian Advocacy League for Individuals with Disability or Valid facilitates a program where self-advocates speak to residents of group homes about their experiences of where they live, specifically how they speak up if something isn't right. The program employs 15 people to do this work and Gregory Tucker is part of the team. We interview a resident. We ask them questions like, what it's like living in their home and if they feel safe in their home or what they do in the community. And why is this work that you and the team at Valid do important, Gregory? We just want to make sure that everybody is happy and we hope that everyone's okay and if there's nothing okay or anything wrong, we can certainly try and help them. But Gregory also works at an Australian disability enterprise. Well, when I first started um, at my ADU job, yeah. I was only getting between t- uh, $2.37 to $2.50 an hour. Well, I was told that if I keep working hard or if I raise my employment level high enough, then my pain goes up every six months or so. So I guess what I'm feeling is that I'm hoping that eventually I do reach the minimum wage. There's nothing illegal about how Gregory is being paid. There's an incredibly complex system in place that supports the segregated employment of people with intellectual disabilities. But just because it's been done like this in the past doesn't mean it's right. We all know that a crappy job can be really crappy experience. So jobs where you have little control over the kind of work that you do, you're working unreasonable hours, there are high demands on you and you have little control over it, you're not paid well relative to someone else, you're harassed in the workplace or whatever all those experiences are, they are really bad for your health as well. And and some work we've done on that also shows that, one, disabled people are more likely to be in those poorer quality jobs. And working in a segregated workforce, unfortunately, increases isolation. Catherine McAlpine is the CEO at Inclusion Australia, the peak body representing people with an intellectual disability. What happens is, particularly for people with an intellectual disability, is they're segregated from the age of five, that people say, oh, people with an intellectual disability will go to a special school. Now, What that does is it teaches people from a very young age that people with disability, particularly people with an intellectual disability, belong over there. And that entrenches an attitude that they belong in a separate system. At a very practical level, people don't meet people with an intellectual disability. They don't get to know them. They don't make friends with them. And what we know both from um, experience and from the research is that attitudinal change happens with personal contact. So when you have a relationship with someone that's that's when your attitude changes. There is an entire system in place that supports the segregation of people with intellectual disabilities. It starts with the belief that people with intellectual disabilities belong over there and out of the mainstream workforce. 
and it's supported by heavily subsidised wages for jobs that aren't necessarily right for the individual. Fiona McKenzie is the chairperson of Council for Intellectual Disability. She has a job she loves and is valued by her employer and has an intellectual disability. I mean, when you put on a supermarket shirt for the first time, you feel like 10 feet tall. And it's like you've got a new adventure ahead of you and it's like a step in the right direction. I work on cash registers. So um, I work through the pandemic, so I'm known as an essential worker. I didn't even know that that even existed until the pandemic hit. My first job at Coles was working in bakery, and I just I just love working. Fiona has had some challenges in her workplace, but with the right support, has been able to navigate them. I had a, a line manager who pretty much made my life hell. Not hell, but it was sort of like, he made me feel uncomfortable working in, in the department. He didn't want to know about my disability, didn't know what, didn't really want to get to know me, what I was capable of doing. So I was going home cranky, which I didn't want to do, but when things, when the communication breaks down, it, it really affects your the way you want to work. And he made me feel like I wasn't meant to be in that department. Fiona managed to find her way through this difficult time at work and has recently clocked 14 years at Coles. And she's not alone in facing issues in the workplace. Gavin Burner has faced similar attitudinal barriers at his job at a community centre helping with activities for other people with disabilities. I start to volunteer in different places because I believe to be a volunteer, they keep you alert. So I would plan to be about for a while and leave, but they keep on saying that they were employing me. Um, an agreement was that I had to go and study. I, I finished up doing level three in disability. From that, um, got a job, but the problem was uh, it was uh, like 10, they offered me like $10 an hour. The consequence for paying somebody just $10 an hour is that they live in poverty, surviving day to day. And yes, they may receive Centrelink or NDIS supports, but it's not enough to break this cycle. And Kavanagh. Let's think about the barriers for employment. <laughs> you can't get away from structural problems about the lack of jobs not being able to get to the job, not having a house that you can call home. You know, that's a fundamental prerequisite to getting a job. You can't deal with the endemic discrimination that people have in, in, in employing people with disabilities. This endemic discrimination is something most people with disabilities have experienced, if not all. Dr Dinesh Pilipana found his way to disability in his 20s. It was the 31st of January 2010, you never forget the day or the time. It was about 8 p.m. It's a rainy day. I was driving from my parents' place in Brisbane back to Gold Coast. There were roadworks happening on the highway. I drove up just to this dark stretch of road. There'd been bits of roadworks, like you could still see the signs on the side of the road. And I came up to something really dark, uh, like a 
patch of water or oil or something. And uh, as soon as I hit it, my car lost control. It spun and spun and spun and then it flipped nose to tail. And when it landed, I realized I couldn't move anymore or feel my body. At the time of his accident, he was at university studying medicine, but had to fight to stay at uni. And I was told that um, there was a meeting at that time with some of the doctors that were involved in my care. And one of the doctors present in that meeting said that they all said that it would be ludicrous for me to attempt to become a doctor again. Hearing something like that is heartbreaking. And uh, you, you can't, you know, it, it takes a fair bit of effort to ignore that. And it, it's hurtful, actually. It's pretty hurtful to talk about. One of the parallels I think about is, you know, racism, because one of the reasons racism is so hurtful is because people are attacking something that you cannot change about yourself. Um, something that's just a part of you. And it's the same with disability, I think. If someone's attacking you or saying that you can't do something or saying that you need to be a certain way because of your physical characteristics, I think that's a pretty hurtful thing. The open job market doesn't work for everyone. Micro-enterprises are small businesses that a person with a disability can set up and run with the right support. In Adelaide, the Community Living Project helps people with disabilities start and manage a micro-enterprise. Project Manager Wendy Butler can explain more. We start off with what we call um, a discovery phase and that's, that's when we first get to know somebody really well. Like what are their interests and skills and passions? Two years ago, Jenny Tucker was unable to get out of bed, feeling like most things in her life were a chore. But when she connected with Wendy and the micro-enterprise team, that all changed. I had a bit of social phobia because I didn't meet lots of people. It was really only my children and my, my one helper. And I spent most a lot of the time in bed and just not speaking to people. So I was really wary of meeting new people and what do I say? I don't do anything. I didn't do things. So I had no conversation. Now I'm comfortable talking to people. People wave at me as they drive past and pop in and I don't have that social phobia anymore. And I've met so many people in the neighbourhood. Micro-enterprises work really well for some people with disability because they're shaped around a person's interest. So Jenny Tucker enjoyed gardening and lots of different ideas were thrown around before she landed on creating a garden kitchen. Well, it all started fairly slowly, really. We were, I was going to just have a little stall or something out the front and get rid of my extra zucchinis and tomatoes, possibly sell them to the local cafes and that type of thing because I've been growing things, but now that my children have left home, there's not, I'm only one person, so I couldn't eat everything, so... Um, it sort of evolved into, well, I've planted too many seedlings, so I'll sell those, and then we ran out of space. So it's, it's been an organic process of, of how it's happened. Jenny is just one example of what can be achieved with the micro-enterprise. There are lawn mowing businesses, photographers, bakers, you name it. There is probably a micro-enterprise. 
And that's because people with disabilities have varied interests and are passionate about different things. And if we take the time to understand what these are, then so much more is possible. There's no quick fix to getting people with disabilities into meaningful jobs. But there are some brilliant people in the disability community that have spent years working on ways of changing this. One idea that Catherine McAlpine has starts with our kids. Education is the starting point. Like we need to resolve that issue because that's your long-term attitudinal change will be will be resolved there when people actually understand that in our community there are lots of people with an intellectual disability and lots of people who are different and the difference is fine like the more difference we're exposed to the more we go oh okay so we're all different so by creating inclusive schools we will be showing our kids that difference is difference and doesn't mean you can't work alongside somebody who has a disability there's some systemic issues that need to be addressed to try and make sure that people with an intellectual disability are as free and have the same opportunities to contribute to the economic well-being of the country as everyone else and to enjoy the benefits that work gives us all you know, relationships with other people and a feeling of community and a feeling of contribution and, of course, a salary to take home to live the rest of your life. Being able to go into a workplace and be seen and treated as equal to your non-disabled peers, that is... You know what that is? That's being an Australian. That's buying into what this country has to offer. Finding the place in this world where you belong and you're valued as you are. Up next on Let Us In. I was feeling like air travel actually could be really easy through these massive airports in America where, you know, LA, Orlando even, you have to take a, a tram to transfer between terminals. But that wasn't even hard. That was all accessible, easy to do same process applied to me as everyone else so that was great arriving to Sydney and that's where it starts again where you're treated differently and it's not easy that's up next on let us in if you like what you've heard subscribe on the ABC listener for more episodes and feel free to share this podcast far and wide This podcast has been produced with the support of the Melbourne Disability Institute and the University of Melbourne. The executive producer is Sarah Shands of Point Five Productions. Fact-checking by Lisa Herbert. Big thanks to Blythe Moore, Phil Ashley-Brown, Simon Scoble and Nicole Bond. Sound engineer is Grant Walter. Conversations. You go into a psychiatric hospital. Spend an hour in the life of someone else. Because you can no longer function. Someone who's seen and done remarkable things. Who are all these crazy people? And it takes a while to realise you're one of them. Just because people are not completely sane doesn't mean they can't help you. Follow on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.